You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. We're your uh, your tech guide. We're your your friendly nerds that'll help you understand everything about technology in uh, your life. And we've got an awesome program today. Uh, later on, uh, we will be uh, opening up the mailbag, taking some of your tech questions. And uh, also, we're going to be talking to someone from Intel that uh, is developing the next generation of satellite technology or processors for satellites that incorporate artificial intelligence. And quick fact here, I don't want to spoil things, but did you know most of the processing technology in satellites right now is 20 years old? Well, we're going to learn why that is and uh, what Intel is doing to make things better. Uh, let's talk about some of the tech news, uh, John. And uh, there's some interesting stuff that we're following here. This was really cool. Microsoft has uh, designed a new smart fabric that can detect objects placed on it. So if you put like a uh, avocado on it, it can tell you that it's an avocado with 94% accuracy. <laughs> Why is this useful? I don't know. I don't know yet, but this is kind of cool. Uh, it's called Cap... I can't even pronounce this. Can you pronounce it? Capitivo? Let's go with that. Sure. Uh, so you can uh, place things. It's it's a prototype right now. It's like a 12 by 12 grid of electrodes attached to a conductive fabric. And they have uh, tried a bunch of different things. The only thing that it's having a hard time with right now is metallic objects, books, credit cards, or other items with square edges. Can't huh. figure that out. But it can figure out organic shapes. Apparently. I mean, that's kind of cool. What if you What if you had like this on your jacket and you're walking like through like a dark hall and something touches you? You know, oh, that's Dexter. <laughs> Is that really something we need solved? I don't know. I don't know, but I like it. So smart fabric coming to you in the future. You can have a smart jacket. can tell you what you're touching. Um, let's move on to some of these stories here, John. Uh, this one was interesting uh, as well. A, a robot with artificial intelligence that repairs potholes for a fraction of the cost of humans. So if your job is filling potholes right now, watch out. The robots are coming. They're, well, they're coming for all of us, but yeah. uh, for potholes sooner than later. So this is super cool because like, there are so many potholes, especially you know during the winter and after winter because of all the cold and moisture and water. And they got to send a team out to fill these things. And that's multiple bodies and equipment. This is like one big robot looking. It looks like a tank. Yes. Yeah. A pothole tank. Yeah. The way I described it, though, is it's a pothole tank that will basically find that hole and then 3D print over top of it. Like asphalt? Asphalt, yeah. Like, just fills in the gaps. Does it really have to get that accurate? With the, Can it just, like, squirt some asphalt in there and just smooth it over? I guess it's got to kind of know how much to put in. Well, yeah, because then you won't have a big ramp. <laughs> Getting all Dukes of Hazard on... Uh, Sixteenth. <laughs> yeah, you got, you got to Google this thing. It. I mean, it looks like a big tank. It's like a big square tank. But wouldn't that be amazing? Just having you know a couple of these go throughout the city. Yeah, at night when no one else is on the str- on the roads. No, they'll have them going during the day rush hour, of course, just to yeah. keep things real. But uh, yeah, it's just amazing some of the technology and especially with the artificial intelligence knowing exactly what shape to uh, print that asphalt into so that it can put it in perfectly. Like, how much faster would that be? Probably a lot faster. Yeah. But I guess it just comes down to the price. Like, how much is one of these robots? That 
is the magic question, I think. It's not cheap. No, no. And obviously, they they need humans to drive this thing and to make sure it doesn't run amok, <laughs> so, so to speak. Put asphalt over top of a dog that gets stuck underneath it. Yeah, see, that's not good. Yeah. Anyway, these are some of the things we're following in the tech news here on Get Connected. I just want to talk about our contests. Uh, I think it's over today. Uh, we've been giving away a Roku stream bar, so it's your last chance to enter to win. This is an awesome sound bar slash smart TV device, all built into one. Works on any TV with an HDMI connection. Again, from Roku, go to our contest page, getconnectedmedia.com. And tomorrow, we will be giving away a new prize for November, a Google Pixel 4 XL. So even if you sign up today for this contest, you'll be automatically entered in to win that one next month. And this is an awesome smartphone. It's got like one of the best cameras out there, especially for uh, dark and, and night photography. So again, a Google Pixel 4 XL and the Roku stream bar, getconnectedmedia.com. Go to the newsletter tab and all the instructions are there. When we come back, we're going to find out about a serial box-sized satellite that's using the latest in processing technology to save money and get images back to Earth faster. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. We've got a really interesting uh, segment here now and a, a great guest. We're going to be talking about the first satellites with artificial intelligence on board and what that means. There uh, is uh, actually a, a satellite uh, passing overhead of us. Uh, I think it... Uh, over uh, 530 kilometers, uh, going about 27,000 kilometers uh, an hour. And uh, it's basically using uh, something from Intel, the Intel Movidius Myriad 2 Vision, Vision Processing Unit, or a VPU. To help us understand why this is important, we've got uh, our guest. Uh, his name is Jonathan Byrne. He's head of technology office at uh, Intel uh, Movidius. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. No problem. I got to be honest, I would have thought there would already be artificial intelligence in a lot of the satellites up there. Why, why is it uh, taken this long to get up? Well, there is a lag between the processors in Earth and the processors in space, and it's about 20 years. So, <laughs> what? The, the technology, yes. <laughs> You're freaking yeah. me out now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're running on, if, if even Pentium quality processors. Uh, in space uh, because it costs huge amounts to design the the chips to verify that they can be rat hardened and so they stick with very old technology that has what they call a space heritage um, that it has you know shown to be resilient in space and when you say resilient and resilient in space like what do they have to endure um, well the the biggest problem is massive amounts of ionizing radiation so you have electrons whizzing about the place and they can do things like uh, set and unset bits, uh, you know, change the values in transistors. Uh, you can have things called latch up events where the, basically the circuit gets locked in a power using position and it basically can't turn off. Um, and these are all very <laughs> these, bad things that will yeah, these your satellite. These sound important, <laughs> important yes. functions. Okay, before we get a little more into, into that and, and what you've done to... I guess, harden uh, your Intel chip. Uh, why, why would we want to have artificial intelligence uh, on, uh, on a chip? And uh, tell us more about this, uh, this satellite as well and what it's supposed to be doing. I think it's called the PhiSat-1. 
FISAT one, yes. So it has a hyperspectral camera, um, a very, very compact one. The, the whole drone itself, or the satellite itself, is about the size of a box of cornflakes. Um, and basically, with the kind of push towards small sats and cube sats, the technology is getting much, much more compact. While at the same time, it's generating huge amounts of data. So even small CubeSats like the FISAT-1 are generating massive amounts of hyperspectral imagery, and that all has to be transmitted back to Earth. When it gets to bigger satellites, um, like the ones in the ESA Copernicus program, which are mapping the Earth, they can send petabytes of data. And the problem is, is they just don't have enough availability in the ground stations to transmit it all. So what uh, FISAT-1 is showing is basically it's going to remove any images of clouds. 70% of the Earth is covered in clouds on average at any particular moment. That way, if you're taking a picture of a cloud, don't send it. <laughs> um, yeah. And it may sound really obvious, um, but like the, the best compression algorithms out there at the moment are getting maybe 10% compression on the image data. We can get 60% uh, Com reduction in data before compression, um, just using this approach. So by not sending data that is, you know, of clouds, we can massively <laughs> reduce the amount of bandwidth. So it's a cloud remover. Cloud remover. That's that's function number one. Um, and if we can do that, that solves a huge problem um, with these sort of passive sensors, such as the hyperspectral cameras or, or GB optical cameras. You said the satellite's like the size of a cereal box. Yeah. That that's also kind of scary to me. Is that safe and stable? Like wouldn't you want like one the size of a fridge? Ooh, well, I guess again, that's more expensive to send up. Absolutely. And the the point here is like the hyperspectral camera on the FISAT 1, maybe 10 years ago, it would have required something the size of a fridge. Um, with these smaller satellites, they're in low Earth orbit, so they are designed to degrade and naturally fall back in, you know, after I think a year and a half of the FISAT-1 um, and basically burn up. So the idea is that you have smaller satellites in temporary low Earth orbit that will naturally degrade and uh, fall out of the sky. So there's less risk there. But the, the, the point here is cost. Um, sending something up the size of a fridge is massively expensive and instead sending up smaller satellites that can do this sort of functionality um, is, is uh, you know, taking off massively. I've heard costs of 50,000 for a satellite launch, which is crazy cheap compared to how much it used to Sorry, cost. Sorry, only 50,000 for your cereal box? For a one U, so with CubeSats, they do it with uh, one unit. Yeah. So ours is a six U satellite, which is six units. Okay. But I think for one U, it's as low as 50,000 on a launch. That's that's pretty cheap. I mean, in the past, these things have been like millions, if not into the billions of dollars. It was only the, you know, gov uh, governments would be able to fund these sort of things. This was beyond kind of private enterprise. But now the prices have been driven down massively. So, uh, yeah. You, you said this satellite's only going to last about a year? A uh, year and a half. Um, and it's currently monitoring. It has a hyperspectral camera and a thermal IOR camera that allows it to monitor uh, the environment. It will be looking for um, uh, changes in the polar ice caps, and it'll also be looking, be able to detect things like forest fires and their spread. Do we already have stuff like that up there, satellites that do that? 
Yeah, I, I mean, there's uh, hyperspectral cameras that will deal with different uh, applications, um, different uh, uh, wavelengths of light. Um, but the, the key is to have satellites that are in the right place at the right time. But again, when all of this analysis is done, it has to transmit all of those images back to Earth. And then those images have to be inspected by either a human or an algorithm once they hit the ground. What we're looking at the next application of AI is that it will automatically detect uh, the fires in, in the stream and video data and will only transmit those images back, images that are important um, and not having to stream everything back to Earth and let it be processed there, basically processing it on the edge. And how far are we away from that? Um, we're very close. So with this uh, FISAT-1, we're, we're, we're showing that the hardware and the AI is capable of operating in space. Um, but uh, we have planned FISAT-2, which will be going up uh, sometime in either 2021 or 2022. Um, and we're also looking at possibilities of satellites as a service. So for example, loading multiple networks onto a satellite or if uh, deep learning models onto a satellite. So for example, if it's over California, it's looking for wildfires, whereas if it's over an area of during rainy season, it could be looking for flooding. Um, if it's over the sea, it could be looking for algal bloom and only sending the information back as it detects it. We're talking with Jonathan Byrne. He's head of technology uh, over at uh, the Intel Movidius uh, side. Uh, and we're talking about a specific uh, chip as well. Uh, the Intel Movidius Myriad 2 Vision Processing Unit. Sounds uh, really techy, <laughs> Jonathan. Uh, but again, it's basically bringing artificial intelligence up into space to allow processing to happen faster and more intelligently uh, to save on time and, and, and money, I guess, uh, overall. Um, so we talked about this spotting forest fires, you know, very quickly and or wildfires for that matter. And, uh, you know, sending that back uh, to Earth right away. Are there satellites that already do that? Like, is it going to be faster or is it as fast as these existing ones? Um, it's the the amount of data that's generated by the other satellites could be better but um they may they still require a lot of this processing the idea of being able to transmit and notify people on the ground in real time is where there would be great savings um and again this is part of an idea of building up a, a mesh or a constellation of these satellites so that they could be continuously monitoring um again FISAT one is actually it's one of a pair of satellites that i think have a two-day uh, uh coverage of the earth um but again there are other satellites out there with hyperspectral cameras that can that have this functionality um as part i think as well as the copernicus program has uh isa has a couple of other satellites that do the similar monitoring of hyperspectral data but your, your serial boxes are cheaper cheaper and more numerous so <laughs> um uh i i'm, I'm interested um you know you talked about edge computing. Uh, can you explain to listeners what that means? I don't think everyone understands that concept. Oh, of course. Sorry. Yes. So uh, this was the idea behind the Movidius technology was um, there are very powerful GPUs and big expensive processors that can be used on the cloud uh, for processing data. Um, but uh, Movidius focused on low power embedded technologies. So this is, they realized that the world is moving to putting cameras in everything. Um, and in order to be able to process the output from those cameras, you needed something that was very low power and could work, you know, uh, 
low cost and, and, and build, be able to be built into PCBs. So um, the idea of the edge was, uh, you know, if you had a system that was monitoring a car park, for example, if you try and send all the streams of data from all the camera systems back to a server, you're going to use huge amounts of bandwidth. You're going to be using terabytes of, of data across the network every day. And you have big expensive servers that have to do all this processing. Whereas if you put a Movidius chip in the camera and it only counts the number of cars that it sees and reports that back maybe every 15 minutes, you can massively reduce the amount of data. The idea is to process at the edge of the cloud rather than on the cloud itself and only send back important information. So um, with, with that kind of goal, uh, the biggest, the, the Myriad chip was first initially uh, put in drones. So the DJI drones used it for collision avoidance and it was able to handle the output of eight high, uh, HD cameras and use less than a watt of power. So anything running off a battery, for example, you need to focus on this low power envelope. Again, we're talking uh, with our uh, good friend. His name is Jonathan Byrne. He's uh, over with the Intel Movidius folks. We're going to have to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we're just going to pick his brain a little bit more on how they actually make sure that uh, the chip can withstands, uh, withstand the rigors of space. You're listening to Get Connected. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. We're talking about satellites and artificial intelligence in space space <laughs> space uh, we've got Jonathan Byrne he is uh, head of technology over at Intel Movidius they uh, have uh, launched a, a satellite into space called the FISAT-1 it's got an Intel Movidius Myriad 2 vision processing unit a VPU this is the same type of chip that uh, you can find in uh, in drones uh, you know under a thousand dollars here on earth uh, they're now using this artificial intelligence to make the satellite smarter more efficient to save money and time thanks again for joining us jonathan no problem earlier on in our interview you talked about uh the the processors or the the chips in a lot of these satellites are 20 years old and uh, you're actually bringing the latest technology now up into space and the reason before or the reason now still is that uh, these chips have to be tested uh, against all sorts of things uh, that are, are happening up there. What did you guys have to do to make sure that uh, uh, your VPU, your video processing unit, could actually survive? Um, so we were working with a company called Ubotica, who uh, basically built a board around our chip um, for integration with these sort of uh, space applications and in satellites. Um, and in order to show that this would survive in space, they had to go to CERN um, and basically bring it to the Large Hadron Collider and put it in front of a particle stream where it was bombarded by high energy particles for, I think, three days continuously. Isn't this how um, the, the Hulk started? Yeah, yes, not too far <laughs> off. Um, and and what, what, what amazed me was the, the pictures they sent back is, you know, they don't, these, these accelerators, you can't turn them off. <laughs> they just, they just keep firing because it's too expensive to turn them off. So they just have a large concrete block that keep them safe, you know, so you have to make sure you know which side you're walking around on. <laughs> If you're if you're working on the chip, um, but basically what what you find is you know there's certain types of hardware that are very vulnerable to this. For example, RAM you could have bits flipped, or uh, you know you can have uh, latch up events where it gets locked in the on position and you can't turn it off. Um, but the chip itself turned out to be, even though it's a commercial off the shelf chip, 
it managed to work fine. There was very few events um, and basically they can use it as is. Um, now what they do is they do add extra electronics around it that monitor its power usage um, and you know if for example something did happen and it did get locked on it's easy to reset it and um, that seems to be the uh, way of making these satellites work as the old windows so, so you're basically re you're rebooting it in space <laughs> reboot it in space and, and see how it goes um, that seems to solve a lot of problems and that sort of facility has to be added but the chip itself proved to be surprisingly resilient um, one of the interesting things was that the, uh, the chip, when Movidius was a startup and they couldn't afford to buy an ARM core or an Intel core design, what they actually did was they took one that was free and openly available, which was the Leon core, which had been developed by ESA. And because it was developed by a public body, they, they gave it away for free. So ESA developed this you know, 15, 20 years ago, they gave it away for free. A small startup has used it in their technology and now it's ended up going back to ESA. So this is another reason possibly why it was so resilient um, was that it actually was building on space technology to begin with. Jonathan, I, I'm I'm really curious about this, uh, the actual structure itself, the, the serial box, as Mike called it. Um, you mentioned that when you were doing the testing at CERN, that it was resilient uh, out of the box, basically. When it's actually... <laughs> I like what you did there, John. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, when it's actually in space, is it literally just a circuit board? Like, what's the kind of housing? Like, what, what do these satellites actually look like? You know, like... What, what this the satellite actually... I'll tell you, I can describe it because I, I, I 3D modeled it myself, is you have a the, the HyperScout camera, the HyperScout 2, which is the hyperspectral camera. On that, it has a PCB, which contains our board, which is monitoring the data coming off it. And the rest of the box is essentially batteries, solar panels, and torque motors. So these satellites don't have any like hydrazine or something to, to correct their position. They, they have small torque rods that they can turn to align and orient the satellite. And basically, it's very simple. It's just solar panels that are topping up the battery, uh, the torque rods to do the alignment, and then the camera itself that's taking the pictures. So that's really all it is. Um, and again, they're being designed to be as small as possible. Um, the the launch that uh, we were on, uh, the Vega satellite, uh, Vega rocket, had, was deploying uh, something like 16 satellites that come up with a new way of sending out multiple satellites at once. And, you know, th th there's a huge push to just make these very small, compact satellites for low Earth orbit um, that, that follow this kind of design methodology. Um, and that's it. You know, again, you don't want a huge amount of stuff in space. You know, one question people always ask is like, wouldn't you use lead to kind of protect the the, the electronics? Um, but the problem is, is you have to use a centimeter of lead uh, <laughs> to protect it. And you wrap everything in a centimeter of lead, you've blown your weight budget. So, you know, they, they're very, very simple by design. And they're just relying on basic electronic monitoring and, you know, radiation characterized hardware to work we've been talking with jonathan byrne he is uh we'll call him rocket man uh he's the head of technology over intel movidius talking all about uh artificial intelligence uh with a, a new generation of satellites thanks for joining us jonathan my pleasure thank you when we come back from the break more tech to talk here on get connected stay tuned 
You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. It's time to open our viewer and listener mailbag. We get all sorts of questions uh, into the website, getconnectedmedia.com. If you've got one, ask it. Uh, we might just choose it to answer on air. And we've got quite a few to go through here, John. So uh, let's get to it. Uh, this one here is from uh, Pascal. And he is asking, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, I listened to the radio show uh, last week, and I have a great interest in uh, smart home products for monitoring the water piping of uh, my home. I'd like to get some more information uh, on it. Uh, we talked to Mark Salzman about this, mm-hmm. and I'm going to get one in my house. And so there's a few on the market. Uh, I think what Mark covered was uh, one called Flo, F-L-O from Moen, M-O-E-N. And uh, these things aren't cheap. They're like $700. You probably want to get a plumber in to install this unless you're super handy. But the idea is once it's installed, you've got the app set up and everything, this monitors the water pressure inside your home. And it's smart enough to know if pipes are frozen, if there's a leak somewhere. And the the fantastic part of it is that it'll automatically shut off the water to prevent any further damage. And that is a huge issue uh, with, with insurance claims for homes, water damage, because something has broken or burst. I still don't know how it can tell just from the pressure changing what the problems are. It sounds like some pretty cool tech in there. Yeah. I don't think it matters what the problem is as long as it shuts the water off. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I've had friends where their entire basement was flooded because uh, a pipe burst while they were away, even for like a few hours. Yeah. Like, the water doesn't stop. No. So with these type of devices, uh, it, it works quite well. Um, there's other uh, ones out there. Um, Belkin also makes uh, one uh, called Finn, spelled uh, P-H-Y-N-N. Uh, kind of does the same thing, a uh, little bit cheaper, and they've got a few different models. Uh, so you'll want to check that out uh, as uh, as well. Should we get another question here, John? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, this is a good one. It's from uh, Doug. And he's asking, I want to make my Sony TV into a smarter version using a Chrome Plus dongle. I don't understand the details to do it, the streaming cost. How does it all work? I'm a senior, so not really tech savvy. Yeah, you know, and that's a challenge, John. Like some of these things, you're probably, if you can, get your son or daughter or a grandkid, who is typically smarter than all of us, just to even help set the thing up to begin with. I mean, they're they're getting simpler, but there are a few things you have to jump through. So what he's, I think, asking about, Google's got a new uh, Google Chrome device. It's like, uh, how big would you say? It's like the size of your keys. Yeah, it's round. And it's got like one little plug that plugs into the back of the TV into what's called an HDMI connection. This is like an audio video source. And once you plug that in, it also has a power cord. So you are going to have to plug it into an actual wall outlet. Some of these things in the past, you could just plug into the back of your TV into one of the USB ports for power, but not this one. So if you can plug two things in, you're one step further. <laughs> we should clarify, this is a Google Chromecast. With, with Google TV built in. Yeah, Chromecast is sort of the technology we're talking about here. Um, we gave away, or we're giving away a Roku Stream Bar that also does the same kind of thing. Yes. Just a different provider. So this comes with the little Chrome co- Chromecast, I call it a dongle. Yeah. Kind of like just yeah. hangs off the back of your TV. Uh, you got to plug one thing into the HDMI port, one into the power outlet, and it also comes with a remote control. So the next thing you have to have to make this all work would be a, a Google email address. Yes. So you're going to have to go to Gmail 
Uh, is that gmail.com? It is. It is. And get a, a Google Gmail email. And this is good because you can use it for everything. Yeah, if you don't already have one. And so once you have one, this is what you're going to use when you're setting it up. So basically, once it's plugged in and powered on, you turn your TV on. Make sure you have batteries in the remote control as well. It does come with batteries. Uh, and uh, it should be popping up on the screen. Uh, you just have to make sure that the TV set to the source that it's plugged into in the back. So you can just kind of flick through that. And then it's going to start asking questions like, what is your Gmail address? What is your password? Because it's going to use that to set up your account. And if you can do that, then you're you're on on the right way to it. I think some I think this one you have to go through Google Home. I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So you might have to go through the Google Home app, but it'll tell you on screen what app it wants you to download onto a smartphone or tablet. When you get this actual dongle, it'll have probably a sticker or a pamphlet in it that'll yeah. have that all written out for you. Yes. Uh, so again, if you can get a little bit of help, it makes this whole thing easier, unless you're a little yeah. more technical on that. Uh, so once you kind of get into that, then you got to start uh, putting in the streaming services you have. So you've heard of Netflix, Amazon Prime Video is another one, Disney Plus, you know, there's a whole bunch of them. So to get it to work, you have to have an account on those. Yeah. Because if you don't have an account, it's not going to work. So for example, Netflix, you're then going to have to go into Netflix. The app is preloaded. So if you can get this thing going, the, the Netflix icon will be there you click on that and then it'll walk you through setting up an account and again you're gonna have to use your email set up a password and you're gonna have to have your credit card ready as well because it wants your money yeah sometimes if you already have one of these accounts you're not gonna have to log in all the stuff on the screen it'll say go to this website and say like netflix.com slash activate and then you on your phone or computer outside of the tv you'll just go to that website You'll log into your device and you'll approve whatever code is on the screen uh, as an active user of your service. And then that, that everything will just work. You don't have to enter a password or anything like that. It'll be very simple, but it'll really vary and depend on the services that you're subscribed to. And like Mike mentioned, you might need your credit card because not all these things, things are free. Uh, in BC, there's a bunch of different channels that we get for free, like the Knowledge Network, for example. I think in Ontario, it's like TV Ontario, those kind of things. You can get apps for those services and a lot of their content's free if you're a, a, a resident of that province, which is kind of cool. So to get some of those, you're going to have to go into the app store, whether that's like Google. If you were with Roku, you'll have to go into their uh, their app library and and download it and it's once you get into it it kind of makes sense and you can get get through it but uh the main ones like netflix and disney and and those guys will typically be preloaded for you which is a good thing but that's that's the trick you know uh we've done a few segments on these uh these smart tv boxes and stuff and you know we think we're trying to be really helpful and it's you know kind of easy but i think sometimes we forget you also have to have an account on the streaming services and that's where a lot of people get held up because they don't the, the other thing that we did get a, a mailbag about was someone was trying to get TV on their stream bar. And you can't. Yes. <laughs> that cable TV is separate. You would still have to go back to, you know, on your TV, you'd have to switch back to your table, cable box. And you assuming you have cable TV from a provider. If you yeah. don't have cable TV and you're completely cable TV free, TV free, um, there is some options where like global, for example, has a bunch of different channels you can subscribe to if you're not a cable subscriber, but if you are a subscriber, you can get those free as does CBC and a few other ones too. It gives me a great idea for another segment and we're going to do this next week. Okay. Uh, how to replace 
most of your channels that you get on cable through a smart TV box. Okay. It's not perfect, but I, I've been looking into this because I'm just thinking of my parents. Yeah. Um, would it be easier if they could just get the apps for all these on a smart TV box instead of having their regular cable? Well, and the nice thing is, is when you have these apps and you have it all set up and working on your TV, those same apps also work on like your iPad or your phone. So if you're not in the TV room or near a TV or say you're you know at the coffee shop and you want to watch a show, you can do that on your mobile device too. Let's do this and price compare it. Okay. I, I love this idea. Okay. We still uh, have a bit more to talk about here on Get Connected today. Uh, Coming up, we're going to be talking about a way to have a, a little control center for your smart home. Sure, you can look it on uh, your iPhone or your computer, but what if you had a nice, uh, you know, larger interface that you could mount on your wall or just kind of have on a, uh, a little stand uh, in your kitchen? We'll tell you how to do that cheaply. You're listening to Get Connected. Back after this. You're back with Get Connected. Mike and John here. Don't forget to hit the website, getconnectedmedia.com, giving away a few things, a Roku stream bar. This is a, a sound bar and smart TV device built into one unit. And we're going to be giving away a Google Pixel 4 XL starting on November 1st. So if you enter today, you'll have a chance to win either of those. Getconnectedmedia.com, hit the newsletter tab, and you're good to go. Uh, John, I just want to quickly talk about a cool thing I, I saw. I've got smart home stuff going on. Uh, and to access it, I either use my voice or better to look on, on my iPhone. Yes. But I've always thought, you know, it'd be great if I had a little control center mm-hmm. for that. And we found something that is fairly inexpensive to do that. And it's from Amazon. Yeah. Well, I mean, Amazon has a pretty robust app. It's the Amazon Alexa app. Um, but what they've done is they've actually made part of the operating system on their Fire TV, Fire tablets like a dashboard for that system. So it's now it's an option. It's 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 on your home screen. It's on even the lock screen. So the idea is like you could actually have this sort of set up in, in a room, maybe on your coffee table, mounted to the wall, whatever makes sense. And you can actually see all the status of your smart home devices. Well, and the cool thing, these, these Fire tablets from Amazon are so cheap. They're under 100 bucks, some of them. Some of them are like 50 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, and the kid size ones, they've, they've been as cheap as like 25 or $30. So you could get like a little stand that you could basically stick this in your family room so you could control um, everything from your music to your lights to your thermostat. Alarm, to your thermostat. That's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, and it's basically just a free update that's uh, been uh, available uh, on these tablets. And the, the nice thing is if you already have one of these tablets, you might already be compatible with it because they are compatible with the Fire 7, which is from 2018. 19, the HD8 2018 and 2020 editions, and the HD10, the 2019 edition. We're going to do a video on this. Yes. I love it. Okay, that's all the time uh, we have left. I want to thank John and Christina for helping put this show together and the rest of the folks as well, including uh, Stephen. We'll see you again next time.